and we are very happy to be continuing our occasional series of interviews with radical tech workers and we have a really great guest today um, to talk with but before we get to that i have to do my own little plug here my own little advertisement where uh, so i am currently recruiting for a PhD student. It's a fully funded PhD scholarship. As TMK listeners will know, I'm currently working on a, on a large three-year project on the political economy of the insurance technology sector. Uh, and so I'm currently looking for a PhD student to um, propose and do a research project focusing on the critical social scientific study of fintech, insuretech, and or prop tech, something in that kind of broad area of emerging research. So if you are interested or you know somebody interested in doing that kind of work and getting a PhD essentially on TMK Thought, uh, supervised and mentored by yours truly, then please uh, you know, email me directly. I'll throw a link in the episode description to the PhD project page that has more information on uh, the pro on the position and application. But you know, please uh, spread that uh, to uh, other people or yourself who might be interested in doing a PhD on many of the things we talk about on TMK. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 137 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. I am very pleased, we are all very pleased, to be joined by uh, Bjorn Westergaard, who is a senior software engineer at NPR, a Marxist political economist, and a union organizer. You know, just exactly the kind of people we love to talk to, love to hear about their own journey to this kind of work and these kinds of politics. So with that, Bjorn, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Quite an intro. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Guess let's just quick... We can quickly get started by also saying a disclaimer at the top, of course, that, you know, retweets are not endorsements. So, you know, be all of, everything that Bjorn is talking about here is his own opinions, his own thoughts. It's not reflected on or representative of the positions or opinions of NPR, of the, of other people he works with, of the unions, any of that kind of stuff. So just, you know, blanket disclaimer up front that everything said here is our own positions, our own opinions. But so with that said, Bjorn, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I'm very interested in, also, in not only the, the work you're doing as a software engineer, but how did you come to this kind of intersection that you are at now between doing, you know, technology work, but also being, uh, you know, a, a Marxist, uh, a, a having radical politics. How, how did you come to these 
two different, but for you, kind of intersecting um, ways? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think for me, it goes back to uh, high school. I grew up uh, in the D.C. area, as I understand Ed did as well. Um, and I, I went to a high school where lots of people's parents were uh, working in government in one way or another. And those who weren't, you know, civil servants were often working for these companies that were always, always uh, seemed very boring to me out in Tyson's Corner, uh, which I would realize as a teenager were all sort of defense contracting companies, companies that um, supported in, in various ways, you know, the U.S. intelligence agencies or, or military so I got really into this robotics program uh, started by Dean Kamen, the, the Segway guy. Um, <laughs> it was called First Robotics. It's still around. I think it's actually much bigger now than it was when I was, you know, a high schooler. Um, but through that, we were paired with mentors uh, who were professional engineers. The goal of the program was to sort of encourage people, young people, to be interested in STEM right? Uh, this is like 2003, four, five STEM is really ascendant, um, at that time. Uh, and yeah, these, these mentors I had in high school who helped us, you know, build a robot to play a game, um, were people I really looked up to and admired. And it seemed like their jobs were very cool. They would talk about working on stuff for NASA um, they would, you know, talk about open source software, kind of GNU, Linux, all of that. I thought it was really cool. Um, and I, I, I still do. But I, I think the way I was politicized was really realizing that these people generally had very, you know, very urbane, humanistic worldview. They all voted for Obama. Um, they had a lot of scruples about the Iraq war. And yet when you really talk to them about what they did after the initial pleasantries about, you know, Oh, aerospace, NASA, science, you know, it was flying death robots. They, they like made robots that killed people with missiles from the sky. Some of them, um, that was sort of startling to me as a young person and we could, we could dive into all of the steps between that realization and sort of my current political outlook. But I, I think what appealed to me about the broad Marxian socialist tradition is that it had a story about how people could end up in this bind. Yeah, you know, I think I really resonate with what you're saying there. I think these STEM, these magnet programs, they are... They can be sometimes good. I mean, they can, they're both like, I mean, ostensibly these spaces, these programs are designed, you know, to funnel people into very specific sectors of society, into banking, into, um, into, uh, military contracting, into tech, right? But also at the same time, because there's like wiggle room for them to bring in a diversity of people through their testing mechanism, sometimes specifically people who are like, you know, not wide or who grow up poor in context outside of where everyone else is being socialized. There's also room for like a pretty deep and lasting and profound like radicalization, right? Where you come into, you come across people who are just like, 
like you said, making death machines or like creating instruments that effectively just like, uh, you know, speculate and make money off of like the collapse of like grain in some country. And then also not really seeing why there might be a problem with that. You know, and it doesn't come immediate like you're saying. There's still steps. I think about like how most, you know, some of the people I know who grew up in programs like this or who grew up in spaces like this, especially when STEM is being first, when they were first trying to figure out how to develop STEM as like a talking point in public, as a way to organize and funnel people into specific schools. A lot of them are doing the same thing now that like, you know, those mentors you respected and we're talking about are doing. But also some of them like left it completely because they're just kind of disgusted with it. Because if you don't buy in or if you're not successfully socialized to buy in, there's a pretty deep disconnect that I think develops and gets worse. And you either radicalize or you leave, right? Or you get disillusioned, it feels like. I'll jump in real quick as well, just to say for for listeners who haven't been to Washington, D.C., haven't ridden the, the metro <laughs> system, they're like, you really cannot... You know, overestimate how much this is part of the milieu and part of the environment. Just, just yeah. massive, massive billboards. You know, within the the the, uh, the within the metro uh, in Washington D.C. for you know defense contractors, uh, for technology companies, all you know these billboards that are are advertising for all of the people who are riding the train to the Pentagon or to uh, Capitol Hill, right? Like, like getting the eyeballs of uh, military commanders and policymakers on, you know, Raytheon billboards or Intel billboards or whatever. Like it is very much in the same way, you know, if you've ever been to like the Bay area, you know, how the, the entire, urban landscape is just blanketed by the tech sector, right? Just massive billboards, you know, massive skyscrapers. Everything is about kind of creating these monuments uh, of tech of tech power and advertising tech power to other people in tech. And that is very much what Washington, D.C. does, but for like the defense contracting industry. For sure. But yeah, to, to Ed's question, you know, I'm, I'm now just mentally thinking about what all of my friends who I, I really met and got to know in the robotics program, what they're doing today. And yeah, it's all over the map, but you know, there, there are definitely a few people like me, I think who uh, became a bit more political. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who really broke with, they, they had the opportunity to go into, I don't know, uh, work for some intelligence agency or for some contractor. And they really dropped out of that and maybe frustrated some parental expectations along the way. But it's interesting. I don't know. It might, you know, someone should do a longitudinal study. <laughs> yeah, um, I might. I might, to be honest, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it it's, it's interesting to see how, how normalized this becomes as well. Like, it is very much about enculturation and socialization like I spent a little bit of time in Washington DC one summer like my first summer of grad school I had an internship at Slate magazine at the future tense program uh, which was you know like you know, basically just learning how to do technology reporting, but also it was a partnership with the New America Foundation, right? So like uh, being in the midst of the kind of think tank, you know, heart of the of the country and just talking to people 
who I think had very similar upbringings as you, Bjorn, but like were enculturated and socialized to it in the way that those things are meant to, where, you know, just talking to very well-intentioned people who are like, my dream is to work at NQTEL, right? The CIA's venture capital fund, right? Like my dream is to work at Raytheon or something like that. And then like being like, no, this is like a normal career path, a normal like ambition to have. So I'm, I'm curious how you, uh, how you ended up both getting into working in tech, you know, being a professional tech worker, um, but also not like somehow resisting that enculturation. Yeah, I don't know. It's an, I, I, I'm not sure I have a, a clear cut answer to it, but just chronologically, you know, I, one of my first jobs out of school was um, for a, a small startup in England, now defunct, um, that had been founded by a uh, guy I knew, an engineer who worked for the company that had mentored my robotics program. Sorry, that was quite a uh, complex sentence. But uh, so I had an opportunity. This was definitely an on-ramp into that kind of like aerospace defense world, I suppose. Um, and... Uh, I, I, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have hacked it anyway. Right. I, I don't want to make it seem like this is some you know noble choice on my part, but I did, I did have some options to, to like pursue that further. And I instead decided that I wanted to do something political, you know? Uh, so I, I figured in DC, the way to do that, right. The, the, my bad joke at the time was there were only really two industries here, right? There's defense and then there's getting the people elected who keep the money going to defense contractors. No. <laughs> so I figured, Not wrong. well, the, you know, both of those groups hire software developers. Maybe I'll try the latter group. Uh, so when I got back from this short thing in England, I, which was very formative to me because I was also exposed to a kind of like British socialist subculture while I was there. Um, I started working for this company called NGP Van, um, which is recently unionized, which I'm very happy about. Um, and they are basically the Democratic Party's like get out the vote uh, software company. That was really where I first started to see how unions worked institutionally because NGP Van had a number of union clients. Uh, and I was, you know, Occupy was going on. This was, you know, early 2011, I guess, mid-2011. Um, and the NGP van offices were down the street from McPherson Square, which was where Washington, D.C.'s, like, Occupy encampment was. So every day I would walk to work uh, from the Orange Line past the Occupy encampment. I had already been getting into sort of, like, reading Marx while I was in England and uh, it seemed, you know, at the time, I don't think I appreciated how, like, perfectly the stars had aligned for me. It's like, it's like, oh, okay, I'm reading Marx, and I'm an adult now. I'm, like, living on my own, you know, I'm, I'm like, this is my sort of first real job. And, like, of course, there's, like, a mass political movement that is still, like, conveniently located on my walk to work. Like, it, it was only much later that I realized, like, wow, political events really lined up 
in such a way that like when I was maximally receptive to them, they were, they were happening right in front of me. So yeah, Occupy was really how I met a lot of people who wanted to talk about labor, the left, uh, whether, you know, there were alternatives to just straight ahead electoral politics to sort of changing big structural problems in American society, like inequality, the fact that a lot of recent graduates couldn't find a job. You know, a lot of people had, I think, been prompted to ask questions as I had by the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the people I, who are still my, you know, best friends and sort of political co-thinkers today are people I met, uh, in McPherson square at, at Occupy. The other thing I was really getting into at this time was the IWW, mm-hmm. um, which is really where I kind of learned how organizing campaigns worked. So, you know, I, I was very young and, uh, arrogant, right. And at, in Occupy, I really felt like, you know, it's, I was like, I'm a, I'm a year ahead of all of you guys. I've been reading about uh, socialism. <laughs> I know how it all works. The way we have to do this is everyone needs to organize a union. All the existing unions are, are corrupt. Uh, don't bother with them, organize the one big union, uh, and you know, this time next week we'll be living in some sort of, yeah, I, I think at the time I had some vague, like quasi syndicalist idea, uh, about, you know, 21st century socialism. Uh, and I, you know, the good news is everyone was that insufferable at Occupy. So I didn't, I didn't embarrass myself all that much. And I think it was a good way to really get a lot of terrible, sectarian impulses out of my system before I, you know, uh, started doing organizing work where that those impulses would really, uh, waste people's time. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's so interesting to like, honestly, like we, we need that kind of energetic arrogance though, because it's what gets things done is, is that sense of like, you know, not just looking at the world and being like, damn, all of this sucks and it's hopeless, but looking at the world and being like, all this sucks. And, and I've got the answer, me and all my friends, we have the answer to this. We're like, do it. That, that like you, you kind of need that. And I mean, it, it does become this like punchline i think about occupy and the sense of like what you know what did occupy actually do or get done but you're not the first person you know i've talked to by far who is like occupy was actually a really uh key and crucial moment of not only radicalization but you know we talked about the enculturation of places like uh, Washington, D.C. and the Bay Area into, you know, enculturating you into um, kind of con- being part being part of uh, the halls of power. But I think, you know, Occupy did something very similar where it made people realize I'm not alone in this. There are other people who believe this and I can actually go talk to them and I can go hang out with them and I can be surrounded by people trying to actualize radical politics and in some way i think for a lot of people understanding occupy is something that seems like it's so far in the past even though as you've just laid out it was only 10 years ago you know it's not that long so close it's so recent it's so recent um but 
it's so recent, but I think it has also, um, to a lot of people, been something that, you know, a part of our general cultural amnesia um, has just kind of been forgotten. But but for you, it's like, no, it was a really pivotal thing. And it has this lasting influence on not only who you what you think, but who you talk to and who your friends are. Absolutely. I mean, I think Occupy also put me in touch with it helped bridge some generational divides in DC. You know, I met a lot of people who had moved to DC as part of new left organizing projects. They'd been part of, you know, that sort of SDS generation and its various offshoots. Yeah. It was fascinating to meet them. They were, it is, it was as though they, they had always been standing around in this park just waiting for someone to show up <laughs> uh, right. so they could impart lessons to them. Um, the whole SDS generation, he got a lot wrong in my view, but it was really interesting to hear how thoroughly they traversed the intellectual landscape that, you know, I think myself and my buddies thought we were like the first to recover you know, so there's this one guy, Mike Golosh, um, who was part of, you know, the Progressive Labor Party, which you guys might be familiar with, uh, a kind of, well, I won't bother to classify them in the, like, sectarian family tree, but, you know, they were an offshoot of SDS, uh, the non-weather underground offshoot, right? And they were the sort of, cut your hair, don't be a hippie you know, act normal. So the working class, the, you know, this is in scare quotes, the real working class isn't um, turned off by your radicalism. And a lot of them went and got jobs in what they perceived to be strategic sectors. So Mike had gotten a job at the DC uh, Metro, uh, WMATA, and uh, had been involved in some wildcat strikes that shut the city down in the 70s. I mean, just these incredibly disruptive actions uh, with, you know, a, a very multiracial coalition of, of workers with extremely radical political views, you know, running the transit system in the capital of the United States, which I knew nothing of when I showed up in the park. It was just, you know, I, Mike and I, I get along very well, even though we disagree on, you know, quite a lot, uh, to put it lightly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what Mike really impressed upon me was that, you know, he had, he had been able to get things done practically. He had, he had become the president of this union. He'd led wildcat strikes. He'd gotten, uh, you know, arrested doing it. But he also was really engaged with a, a range of workers, workers who had, you know, really were extremely politicized and workers who just thought, you know, Metro ought to pay them a bit more and that only Mike cared about them uh, or only Mike's faction in PL and in the union cared about them. Uh, and that was really eye-opening to me because I think at the time it seemed to me that there was this, there were no models of people who had uh, both sort of a, a developed perspective on what 
what had to be done politically in the, the medium to long term. But we're also like engaged with day to day struggles. And again, like I, if, if I could go back in time and live Mike's life, I probably wouldn't have made exactly the same decisions to be sure. But I, I really admired the fact that he had worked out a plan and stuck to it and undeniably had a, a positive influence on the labor movement in his corner of the world. For listeners who don't know, SDS is uh, Students for a Democratic Society, and you know was a was one of the major um, kind of national student activa- activist groups that coming out of the New Left in the the 1960s and the the 1970s. So you know, just just a little footnote there for listeners who who may not be familiar with that. And I, I think you know that that also gets to something you were just saying here as well Bjorn where it's there is a lot of history to this obviously and a lot of connections between you know SDS and occupy i think his, historical connections that are oftentimes uh, lost or, 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 you know, just haven't been passed down in some way. And so it's very interesting as well to hear you be like, you know, here I am, uh, a, a new, you know, a budding software engineer, you know, working at some startups and, and, you know, the UK, uh, moving back to the US, you know, reading Marx in my free time, being interested in the IWW, uh, like that to me sounds, I think very rare and it sounds like a very, you know, unique kind of cross path of, of interest there at the same time. I mean, I think uh, one of the reasons why we are, we are doing on TMK, these kind of interviews with radical tech workers is also this sense of uh, it, it may not be as rare as people think it is. Right. And you may not be as alone or, or alone as you think you are in both being a you know a, a software engineer or working somewhere in the the kind of tech world, but also very interested in these questions of uh, you know unionizing of of, of Marxist political economy. Um, it sounds like for you, Occupy was really crucial in making you realize you know you're not alone in this, but also you know and learning from other people who have been much longer embedded in these kinds of ways of thinking and 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 ways of practice I would like to fast forward a little bit to the contemporary time where, you know, there isn't an Occupy happening and there, you know, there, I think, and for a new, for a new generation of, of, of people working in tech, uh, I, I think as well, a lot of people do have this sense again, that, um, that they might be alone or that there, that these two things are, are oil and water, that you can't be both a tech worker and uh, a Marxist, or you can't be both a, you know, a tech worker and also a union organizer. You know, obviously in the last couple of years, we see some of that, uh, ra- you know, radical politics start boiling up in the tech sector with some, you know, big actions and discontent at some of the big tech companies like Google or, or so on. But I'm very curious what your, kind of sense of that 
of that landscape is and, and, and of how, how all of this is kind of sitting right now. Yeah, the landscape of, of sort of tech worker um, worldviews. Hmm. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It's an interesting question. I mean, I'll push back a little bit on the premise of the question. You know, I think tech worker is a useful term uh, as, a, as a kind of rallying point, right? Uh, you can sort of run this, this, this uh, flag up the pole and say, hey, we're all tech workers, but I think, you know, I have always, I, I talk a lot with Ben Tarnoff about this. I feel like our whole relationship has been structured around this conversation. Ben, of course, is the editor of Logic Magazine and another tech worker um, who, yeah, has given a lot of thought to these issues. And yeah, I think for me, I was always skeptical of the tech label because I think it was playing a little too much into a journalistic caricature that a lot of my coworkers didn't necessarily recognize themselves in, right? So, you know, I, I like to point out the vast majority of software developers who are themselves, you know, not the whole of tech uh, as commonly understood, don't work for startups, they don't live in the Bay, right? And, but to read journalistic coverage of quote unquote tech, you would think your typical tech worker is like, you know, James Damore riding the Google bus, uh, you know, reading like alt-right screeds and, you know, getting out of Bitcoin when the price is still high, right? Like that's kind of people's image of, of like, you know, what, or it certainly was circa 2015, I think. I, I think, like, actual organizing has, has like, changed the way people understand that term. So now a lot of media workers, right, like the, the tech guild at the New York Times or, or my coworkers at NPR, um, you know, they see themselves as tech workers. But I, I don't think in 2015 anyone had really... You know, everyone was just trying to hold on to the ambiguity as, as, as much as possible just to get anything off the ground. So, yeah, it's hard for me to say what is, what is sort of the range of perspectives among tech workers, because I never really know what the full extent of that population is. I, I would say among your, your, the, the, the subculture of people who work for startups, particularly uh, startups based in the Bay, which I did for a while. And we can, we can talk about my organizing campaign at, at Linetics in a moment. Um, I, I think people who work at startups in a technical capacity are open to big ideas and sort of a capital R enlightenment rationalism or <laughs> Uh, radical opposition to that, right? But it's it just it's a self-selecting group of people who like to argue, who like to have a worldview, who like to say, forget what you know the scholarship says. I skimmed Wikipedia for five minutes, and I'm a whatever monarchist or this one kind of anarcho-syndicalist that existed in Belgium for 15 minutes in 1870, <laughs> right? Like there's just something about that startup milieu where people are really into that. And what most people hear about, right, are the sort of Peter Thiels because 
they, you know, it makes sense if you're going to have like a very rationalistic take on political matters and you're spending most of your time grinding at like building a startup that it, there's like an elective affinity with, with kind of libertarian or further right politics that kind of put at the center of their vision of political life, the innovative young man, and it generally does always seem to be a man, uh, who will disrupt the old way of doing things, make a lot of money, and everyone will thank him for it. Like, that's kind of the, the, the image. And for, I think, an older set, that was like Ayn Rand, right? Just the sort of classic objectivism, Robert Nozick, that, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. for younger people, um, you know, uh, there's, there's like the sort of crypto, you guys have talked about this at length, I think, in a dedicated episode, right? But this sort of Hayekian vision of uh, private money uh, beyond even like the night watchman state, right? Essentially just um, a, a stateless world in which... Uh, people essentially become citizens of like tiny little startups that freely contract with one another. That's, that was kind of like the vision. So I think people hear a lot about that, but I just want to stress like that is as alien to most people who work in software as it is to most normal people. Um, That is just like a tiny subculture that gets a lot of attention because, I mean, if we want to be really reductive because of like quantitative easing leading to a lot of hot money sloshing around in the Bay for the last decade and giving, you know, these people whose ideas aren't all that interesting a, a platform. Yes. We, in early days of TMK, we talked a lot about the zero interest rate problem, which is exactly, <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what you've just uh, outlined here. Uh, but I, I, I wholeheartedly agree that I, I think, you know, it is a minority that gets an outsized amount of attention uh, in part because they have an outsized amount of, of, uh, capital and influence um, kind of driving them or behind them, um, which then also, which then, you know, feeds into the cycle of media attention and scholarship, which, you know, it is a vicious circle um, and, and one that I think we need to break out of. Absolutely. And so, I, I mean, in part through that, I would love to hear about your unionization efforts and experience, because I do think it is, you know, and us having talked um, before this, Bjorn, it, it seems to me as something that you, you know, it's it's not just that you have, uh, you know, the kind of radical politics. You know, you're you're well read and you're you you you're well reflected. Uh, you know, you're you're doing the the you know Socratic know thyself kind of you know all of that. But at the same time, I think you have a lot of experience that a lot of other people don't have and could learn from in terms of not only unionizing efforts, but like. being involved in multiple uh, unionization efforts and all of the um, not only political but personal uh, kind of interactions and and values and goals that come along with that. So, I I mean, I would love to hear about, one, how you got into, uh, you know, these unionization efforts and, and two, you know, what kind of efforts have you been involved in? Yeah, I mean, so we, we, we very briefly touched on sort of my earliest experiences, which were in the IWW. And uh, I think this is worth spending just a second on because 
um, you know, the Starbucks campaign is obviously in the headlines today. And I was really involved. I don't think I contributed all that much in retrospect, but I was obsessed with the IWW's effort to organize at Starbucks, um, you know, a decade ago. Uh, I mean, it really goes further, much further back than that, but I got involved around that time. And I didn't work at Starbucks. I had a software job. But the way the IWW worked back then, uh, they had, in general, there's a lot of variation from city to city, you would sort of meet once a month uh, and people organize these trainings to just teach people the basics of forming a union organizing committee. And, you know, the IWW attracted a lot of people with sort of anarchistic leanings. Uh, so from city to city, there wasn't a lot of like uniformity uh, in how these trainings worked. Uh, but in D.C. and in, in Minneapolis, where I visited and I gather in New York, there was a training um, that basically uh, that taught you like, OK, you're on the job, you're 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 going through it. You're not working for a union as a staffer. You're trying to improve things for yourself and your peers and that and everything else is instrumental to that. Labor law, getting a contract, getting formal recognition as a union were somewhat controversial topics within the IWW. Some people thought you shouldn't pursue any of that at all. Some people thought you could use it instrumentally where it made sense. Some people thought the IWW should be trying to get officially recognized because if they didn't, business, so-called business unions, that was the sort of, um, uh, how to put it, uh, yeah, the not particularly kind term um, for basically every non-IWW union. The, the, the fear was that the IWW would put in the hard organizing work and then some business union would come in and, and file for an election and take the campaign, which never, you know, rarely happened, but was a source of great trauma when it did. So anyway, in these organizer trainings, it really emphasized taking, taking escalating actions, uh, direct actions to win things first. It was about winning improvements. And this sounds kind of obvious, but today, very few unions approach organizing this way. Organizing is about getting legal recognition for the union, and then you'll bargain and hopefully you'll get some improvements down the line. Uh, but the, the idea of just, you know, mobilizing people and teaching them how to democratically choose what kind of mobilizations they're going to do, which problems they're going to focus on, that was front and center. And the law was just something that had to be uh, negotiated. Um, that has been hugely influential on me. And, and I, for many years, thought maybe I'm in just a, a circle of cranks, right? Like maybe we're all just lunatics. Maybe like the real organizers at the real unions who I like knew socially, you know, it's not uh, like in DC, there are lots of 
you know, labor union staffers around. I'm, I was friends with them even at that time. I often thought like, man, this is really hard. Maybe we're doing this in the worst possible way. Uh, but the, the longer I've been at this, the more I realized that I had a much better foundation from these trainings done by this very marginal, eclectic group than I think most people get at, you know, the unions with tens of millions of dollars in the bank and hundreds of thousands of members. So anyway, my, the first campaigns I really were involved in were I was helping people in the IWW chapter take actions at Starbucks and they would win little things here and there, you know, they would, they would get a bad shift supervisor or, or, you know, a store supervisor disciplined. They would ensure that when someone really needed a change in their hours to go to a medical appointment or something, they could get it, you know, that just this, like the rudiments of, of collective action and then I, I think the first non-Starbucks campaign I was really uh, involved in, again, mostly is kind of like a gawker and an enthusiast, right? You know, it's like I, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was just always willing to show up to any meeting. Like at this period in my life, like you just could not hold an open meeting about labor stuff that I would not attend. <laughs> uh, but so like eventually people got to know that they could just like give me rote tasks and I would do them. So one campaign I was involved in, which was initially an IWW campaign, was the campaign to organize the bike share workers in D.C. And that campaign was eventually successful under the banner of the, the transit workers union. And that campaign was fascinating to me because I really saw how a group of like, and I'm, I'm stereotyping a bit here, but just to, you know, I think this is true uh, as far as it goes, there were a group of bike mechanics who were kind of young, bohemian, generally white men uh, who worked for the bike chair operator in D.C. And then there were a group of what are called rebalancers who moved the bikes from station to station at night or during the day to keep the, you know, to ensure that there would be bikes uh, in the places people needed them at the times they needed them. And that was a much older workforce that was like majority black men. And it was fascinating to me to see these two groups of workers who really, you know, in, in D.C., which is still very segregated uh, geographically, would very rarely come into contact with one another, organizing together and really getting it done like really getting down to brass tacks. And I had always heard that this was true, right? This is like the inspirational message in every pro-labor film, right? Like we can all overcome our differences to like address our common problems. But this was the first time I, I really saw that happen firsthand, uh, which like really, yeah, re I, I found that very moving and it really convinced me that, this this had to be part of any broader political project, that the workplace was this like indispensable site of struggle. And I think before that, I was not fully convinced of that. So anyway, jumping ahead to Linetics. So I, I had, you'll note that in all these organizing stories so far, it's not my job, right? I'm just kind of a tourist, right? I'm excited, but I haven't, I'm, I'm, 
I'm the stereotypical leftist who like goes into work, punches the clock after work, loves to tell other people how to organize, but I like wasn't actually doing it in my own job. And uh, I, I was really kind of pushed into it by circumstances. I had this coworker, um, her name is Taylor Hesselgrave, and her story has now become pretty well known. Um, Jane McAlevey's book, most recent book, has a whole chapter dedicated to her story, but I'll just tell you guys the brief version from my perspective. Taylor was one of, uh, I want to say, five or six of my coworkers at this small startup called Lenetics, which had about probably 20 engineers at peak, uh, so very small. And uh, Taylor had come, uh, had previously not, she'd worked, I, I want to say it's like a, I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, her, I think her background was in sort of environmental science. So she'd been a white collar worker of some kind and decided she wanted to get into tech and went to a boot camp called Hackbright that really focused on um, women and people of color who were underrepresented in tech. And she was one of, yeah, like six of my coworkers-ish uh, who had gone through this boot camp together and ended up at, at Lenetics. And because they had this sort of coming in solidarity socially, they really knew one another, um, they were able to kind of make little informal demands of management. So one of the issues they really had was we had this unlimited PTO policy. This is a very common, or it was a very common thing at startups. Um, there's no formal limit on how much vacation you can take, which sounds wonderful. But what it really means is that you will go on vacation if you are like best bros with your supervisor. And if you're not best bros with your supervisor, you will never feel that you can go on vacation. Right. It deters everybody on what I can't remember the specific study, but they found on average workplaces that had unlimited PTO were workplaces where people took it less because they felt like, okay, so then the norm is like, I don't know what the actual norm is, so I should just take it less than I need. But you already take vacation less than you need, even when you get a certain amount of days. Exactly. Exactly. And Taylor, you know, uh, this, this played out over months. I'm really compressing a complicated story. But the, the long and short of it was Taylor had organized her coworkers very informally. She had no past experience with unions. She didn't think of this as it, like an incipient union organizing thing at all. She just saw that this PTO system was not working for her and her peers particularly these women who I got, I found out later felt that they like, you know, weren't taking the vacation they ought to be taking. And she really pushed the executives of this small company on this. And she had been an excellent engineer. Her performance reviews had always been stellar. And one day in the middle of the week, I want to say it was Tuesday or Wednesday, they just fired her because they'd had enough. They were just like, we're done with you, Taylor. And I was working out of the DC office. She was working out of the San Francisco office. The way this worked, we had a bunch of people in DC who would fly out to San Francisco once a quarter, but she was based in San Francisco. 
And I, I just got a text message from one of my coworkers saying they fired Taylor. It's like absolutely bullshit. Like she did nothing to deserve it. It's just because she's been pushing them on PTO and, and some other issues. And it was like, you know, it was one of those moments you never forget because I was like, this is it. <laughs> like I've read these, I've read this book. I know what is supposed to happen right now. Taylor was like, I didn't see it before, but I see it now. Taylor was the like natural social leader. They're disciplining her to send a message to everyone else. I should have been right there next to Taylor organizing on this PTO thing, but I was out of the loop. Um, partly my fault, partly just the difficulty of this being like a bi-coastal operation. But it just, it, it hit me all at once. I was like, this, this, that we can get Taylor unfired if she wants it. Like we have the leverage and this could also become a union campaign. But because I had this IWW background, I was really familiar with workers marching on the boss to demand someone be unfired, right? We, we don't say rehired because we, we just, the best way is, you know, to just act as though you haven't heard that they're fired, right? Keep coming back into work. Right. Just if everyone pretends it doesn't happen, then it didn't happen. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a it's a long and complicated story. But the long and short of it is Taylor decided she didn't want to be reinstated, but absolutely wanted to get a fair deal, like at least the severance she was owed. And there was another worker uh, I, I I won't say her name because I haven't cleared this with her, but, you know, I. I I'm sure people could figure this out. She had been a uh, newspaper um, uh, journalist before switching into tech and had been a member of the CWA. And I, she was the first person I reached out to. And I, I can't recall whether she said it first or I said it first, but at some point we were both just like, these are how you this is how a union campaign starts. Like, this is how it happens. Can we do that here? Like, is that, <laughs> is that, possible. And what we ended up doing was like, yeah, organizing to get Taylor unfired. And then eventually we went for recognition. Um, we got cards from basically every employee at the company. We went public. It was the first software startup to go public with a union hey. essentially ever, as I understand it. Um, and yeah, they fired all of us. They shut down the company. They raised it to the ground. Uh, and we eventually got a legal settlement out of it. Everyone yeah. got back wages. Mm -hmm. You know, we landed on our feet. But it was this, it, you know, it was like one of the best and worst experiences of my life. You know, I, I, a lot of us who were on the Linetics campaign have gone on to do other organizing. It was very galvanizing. But... The settlement wasn't what we wanted, right? We wanted we wanted to actually operate as a union. Yeah, I, I think the other thing I, I have to mention here is that we picketed Linetics's offices and so many tech workers from other companies came out to support us. You know, there, there are pictures of this you can find uh, on like, I think, Indie Bay. You know, there were workers out there in their Google hoodies in their Facebook hoodies, you know, really taking, in my view, a bit of a risk, right? They were like publicly out on a picket line 
supporting these fired workers um, when they really didn't have to do it. And I met a lot of people, you know, Jason Prado was there. I think you've, you've had him on the show. Um, I, I met a lot like uh, Ari's from uh, the tech worker coalition. I like these people just came out of the woodwork. And this to me is really the answer to your earlier question. Like how many, how many of you are there Bjorn? Like how many of these like weird kind of lefty tech workers exist? It's like by doing these actions, by like organizing the picket, you just learn that there are so many more people who care about this and want this to happen than you ever realize. And only think as well when we had Astra Taylor on uh, on the podcast a while back ago and talking to her about about her book and her work and 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 Occupy as well. Um, uh, you know the the title of that episode is something she said in in, in the conversation, which is "Solidarity is contagious," right? And and I mean, it really seemed to me. Uh, that everything you're describing here is that kind of sense of like when the moment for solidarity arises, when the when the conditions are right, then people will come out of the woodwork, as you put it, and and be like, oh, we're you know we're not you're not in this alone. We're all in this together. Um, you know, very much that it, it has a kind of IWW. Uh, ethic to it as well, right? Where it's a, you know, a slight against one worker is, is a slight against all workers. And so, you know, it's very interesting to see that level of support come out, but also in, in terms of, of this being your kind of baptism by fire and, 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 you know, unionizing efforts where it wasn't something where you said, you know, I'm going to join this startup and I'm going to, I'm going to salt it. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to join this startup just for the purpose of, creating a union, but it really was more so like, you know, seeing all of these workplace problems, having a catalyst event of Taylor getting fired and then being like, well, it seems like the solution here is uh, something like unionizing, something like collective action. Totally, totally. And, you know, I, just to connect this back up, you mentioned salting. I, I presume your listeners know what salting is. You might give them a, um, a brief uh, uh, definition in case some some people don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, assault is someone who is you know it classically a paid by the union to go work somewhere and um, get an organizing campaign off the ground. So a staff organizer who actually takes the job to organize. It used to be much more common. Uh, there are all sorts of legal restraints on it now because it was like quite an effective tactic. Today, people use it a little more informally, and it just means anyone who takes a job with the intention of organizing it and maybe chooses the job because they perceive it to be a good position from which to organize. And I really want to stress something I took away from these old SDS people I met was that I never wanted to do that. <laughs> like, it really, that was like an important negative example. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think they did great work. I'm in no way criticizing what they did for those unions. But I think it put them, it's an inherently alienating position, right? Like, if you're taking a job 
that is not obviously the best job for you, people are going to know, people are going to figure it out, right? Like, you know, the, the stereotype of, of like an SDSer who the, the term for this was industrialized, right? An SDSer who went to industry to organize the workers. The stereotype would be, you know, they had a PhD in philosophy from Harvard and they were like a janitor in like a muffler plant, right? And they're like, hello, fellow workers. Like, <laughs> have you heard that like America is an empire and that you are hyper exploited, right? And, you know, it's just, I'm not saying that's how it actually works out in all cases or even most cases, but I knew that I wanted to steer far away from that. I never wanted to be that kind of ideological industrializer. I never wanted to be a union staffer, though I admire the work of a lot of union staffers. To me, what, what was going to work for me personally and what I genuinely felt would be best for getting the labor movement off the ground in tech was just to be a normal software engineer who just didn't stand for certain things, right? Like that's, that's really what a labor movement is made out of. Like, yes, I may be, you keep emphasizing, I have these radical politics. Maybe I do. Uh, but like, I, I think that's actually in a way, the least interesting thing about the last decade of my life. Right. I think what was interesting is I, in part because of my interest in kind of the big picture political stuff had just happened to learn some lessons from prior generations about how you, you get collective action off the ground. Uh, I don't even think I'm a particularly good organizer when it comes down to it, but I am very stubborn and I will sort of get the ball rolling when there's a critical, when I feel there's a critical mass of people to do it. Uh, and I, I genuinely believe that most workers are tired of the status quo, even in, in tech, and that they just need to be shown how to get solidarity off the ground and they'll figure the rest out themselves. Like, I don't think it requires extent like people don't change their view of the world and then decide to organize most people don't i did maybe but we're we're the exceptions that will always be the exceptions and we're not the most important factor the most important factor is that people don't like their working lives they don't like a lot about their lives and if they're given the tools to collectively resist and then down the line to constructively build a better order, they, they will take them and run with them. I, I really believe that. And I, I, if people take anything away from what I'm saying, it's like that, that is what I have, have had the privilege to witness in, in a few instances. I mean, along that lines, then I am very curious as well, what kind of resources and tools and mentors in a very practical sense do you think are available to people who, yeah, aren't going in there, you know, having done a, a PhD in philosophy and, you know, doing the Steve Buscemi meme of hello, fellow workers, you know, but instead are the, I, I think you were right here, are the, the vast majority of people who are just like, man, 
like my workplace sucks for these reasons or this thing happened and that's really awful um, and I want to do something about it. Like what kind of resources and tools and so on are available for people? What would you point people to? Yeah, it's, I, I, I will rattle off a list, but I want to start by saying I think this is something uh, the tech worker sort of arm of the labor movement really needs to have a better answer to. Like, there, there are good answers, but they could be much better. So, you know, I right now get a lot of emails from people, and particularly early in the pandemic, I got a lot of emails from people just because if you Google like tech worker union, my name is somewhere on those Google results and it's not hard to find my email address. And I think that speaks to the lack of like a systematic organizer program out there, right? If people are just like, well, there's this guy named Bjorn, he did it once, I guess I'll email him and ask for advice. That to me is like a, an institutional failure. Um, it's happening less, which I find encouraging, but for many years, you know, like I, I would, I would get an email or two every month, um, off and on. Uh, and I, I, I was like, you know, 24 or something, just some weird, like guy reading marks. I, I didn't have uh, good advice for people at that time, but yeah, today I think, uh, a lot changed during the Trump administration. So on the West Coast, the Tech Worker Coalition uh, is very well organized. Um, and there are a, a, a lot of people who know the ropes and can show you uh, how to get an organizing committee off the ground, um, particularly in the Bay Area. So if you're in the Bay, people should definitely reach out to them. Uh, on the uh, East Coast, um, there's the DSA Tech Action Group uh, in New York and also a Tech Worker Coalition chapter there. Um, but what's really changed over the last few years is now a number of, uh, you know, mainstream unions have tech worker organizing programs. I am partial to the CWAs. Um, I think many of these programs are good. I, I can't really speak to them. I can speak to the CWAs. I think the CWA has demonstrably gotten more of these campaigns to recognition and seems to be on track to getting to winning contracts in a timely fashion. And I, I, I think the CWA, if, if you're a tech worker listening to this, interested in organizing, I would call code CWA first. Call a few other people, but I think you'll find that code CWA has the best program going right now. What's the, what's the acronym for CWA stand for, for people? Yeah, it's the Communications Workers of America, and they represent... Um, yeah, tr historically, they come out of the telecom sector. Uh, but today, they're one of the largest unions, and they still really have a, a telecom focus. But um, they're also perhaps most visible today for their organizing in media, uh, particularly through the News Guild and the sector of the CWA. I'm a part of um, NABIT, which is for historically comes out of radio and broadcast, and today is sort of in podcasting and, and that sort of thing. But the News Guild is on a roll 
I mean, if you looked at the BLS stats, like the News Guild got like its own shout out because it's just organizing so rapidly in the media sector right now. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be this just like rolling boil happening right now around, um, yeah, unionizing, but also just even even uh, actions of discontent within technology companies and the the kind of broader tech sector that you know maybe have not bubbled up into unionizing or are are intersecting with unionizing campaigns, but you know I, I think are. Uh, showing that there's a uh, there's a lot of uh, sentiment right now that's growing and is ripe for turning into some kind of collective action. Uh, you know, I, we we were talking before the before we were recording about the fact that as well, we on Team K will will take no credit for this. I don't think we've had much of a of a massive influence on this whatsoever. But it has been very interesting for me, even just like anecdotally, to start seeing the number of people talking about like the Luddites and and people within the tech world, you know, identifying you know having Luddite in their Twitter bio um, or or coming to the defense of the Luddites when you know their name is dragged across the mud as it often is as this kind of like you know der- derogatory term or something like that and people being like actually you don't understand what the Luddites are and here's what here's what they mean oh by the way I'm a software engineer or whatever you know like it's very interesting I think to see people reaching for uh, other types of of, of movements um, and communities to identify with and again kind of build these various networks of solidarity um, and, and political ideology that can be that can also uh, be consistent with their own commitments and their own interests to um, you know working in technology, creating technology, u- designing, using technology. Uh, so I, I mean, I'm curious what you think about that, and 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 you know how that that kind of as well plugs into efforts around like you know worker unions at places that seem so um, impossible to unionize, places like you know Alphabet. Uh, because they're just so large, but also because they're so, uh, you know, entrenchedly, um, not only like antagonistic towards unionizing, which of course all bosses are. I mean, we see this with, you know, not only the Starbucks stuff, but also famously, you know, is in the news, the, the REI, um, you know, anti-union podcast that they did where it was all, all about, you know, using the language of identity politics and diversity, equity, and inclusion to, for, for them to be like, and here's why a union is not right for us. Like that, we, we expect that. That's, that's common. But it is interesting to see people, um, quite energetically trying to push back against that and push back against things like, you know, uh, venture capitalists being like, what do you need a union for? You're, you're like a well-paid, uh, pampered tech worker. Um, you're not a coal miner. Unions are for coal miners. Unions are not for people like you who uh, sit at computers and type on them all day. I've worked jobs before, uh, not necessarily coal miner jobs, but I've worked manual labor jobs before where we've been told the same exact thing. There's, they just throw the, you're not a insert job you don't need a union i mean that's that's just like 
basic, simple ass talk for anybody that's in a position of authority that's worried that someone is going to, you know, they're going to, people are going to get together and conspire and cohort and be in cahoots with each other. There's all the words that they like to use. It's nothing about, you know, people working for a, a, a single goal through solidarity. It's all about uh, using words like you're conspiring against management or you're you're in cahoots with other workers trying to turn them against management. So no, it's about making sure our workplace is better for us and everybody we work with. And it's ridiculous in the same in the same aspect how people will throw around the word Luddite as a uh, as an insult. What do you think your job is hard? You don't need a union. For sure. For sure. And it's you know it's so interesting. Like I think we've seen a cultural turn uh, certainly in, I, I think for people my age and younger, though, I, I really think across the board where it, it's no longer plausible that employers and employees, uh, interests always align just because you happen to work, you know, in front of a computer or you're a creative or you're a, a software person. I, I think, uh, uh, 10 years ago, that was still such a powerful idea. And I think people felt if I were to get involved in some sort of, uh, you know, I, I had people say this to me almost in terms, right? They're like, you know, my dad worked a factory job and, and was part of a union. Uh, like the whole point of my whole life was to like avoid that subaltern position. And if I, if I join a union, aren't I kind of conceding that I didn't pull that off? You know, I think there was this, this psychological barrier to that. Um, and I think likewise with the sort of Luddite idea, which I, I want to dive into what, what that means on this podcast. Uh, let, let's circle back to that in a second, but I think likewise, there's a certain cultural aura around innovation, right? Walter Isaacson, you know, the Steve Jobs hagiography, right? Um, and people sort of felt like if you were to question anyone who labels what they're doing innovative, it can only be due to some cognitive failure, <laughs> on your part. Like you must just be a fossil who's going to get left behind uh, by like the real doers and imaginers and creative disruptors. And I think one of the, the great and encouraging things about the last, I don't know, five years or so is that no, no one really buys that anymore. Right. Certainly no one I encounter it believes as, as they might have in 2015, like the real division in society is between those who push forward creative disruption and those who are stuck in the old way of doing things, right? They recognize that this innovation speak has been cynically manipulated to, to you know, make a small number of people very wealthy, undermine very important regulatory apparatuses, the obvious example being, you know, Uber running unlicensed cabs in every city just because they said they were a tech company and somehow that made it okay. Um, you know, the complete gutting of all sorts of employment protections for, you know, gig workers from 
TaskRabbit to Instacart, right? I think everyone's kind of woken up. They, they don't, that, that scam doesn't work anymore. The scam, I'm sure, is mutating as we speak. But we're, we're done with that, I hope. But yeah, what is, what is the Luddite idea for you guys? Because, you know, Gavin and I, Gavin Mueller, who wrote How to Break Things at Work, um, you know, he was living in D.C. throughout this period I was describing, you know, he, he definitely had a lot of influence on my thinking. What, yeah, what, what does it mean for you guys to call yourselves Luddites? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I will say Gavin, you know, Gavin's book is fantastic. And I've known Gavin for a very long time. I mean, we've talked about this um, off recording, Bjorn, but this is actually how I've, I first came across you was through an invitation by Gavin to a, a, a really great Facebook group that you were part of, where it was just a bunch of, you know, people having relaxed conversations about Marxism. <laughs> and it's a good question. What does Luddite mean for us? And I think it's, I, I think it is completely um, in line with what it means for Gavin, what it means for another friend of the show, Brian Merchant, you know, people who are, have written or are writing books about this and, and seemingly doing it, uh, in parallel, realizing only later that there, uh, were a number of different pockets of people interested in a kind of revival of Luddite thought, uh, or a revival of, uh, of Luddism. And I mean, for us, just very simply, you know, Luddite, I mean, on one hand, it's about a, a, a kind of doing a, you know, an anti-revisionist take on what the Luddite movement actually was, um, in terms of it wasn't, you know, the original Luddites, uh, you know, and the industrial revolution and you in the UK, you know, it wasn't about just smashing, uh, machines out of some, uh, you know, technophobic fear of technology in and of itself, but rather understanding it as a, uh, a worker's movement, right? As a movement of workers real recognizing how new machinery was being used by capital, by bosses, uh, to make the workplace worse in a lot of ways, to speed up work, to make it more dangerous, to extract more value from labor. Uh, and at the same time, you know, disempowering labor's ability to have a say in the workplace, have a say in how work was done and what work was done for. Um, and so, you know, being very targeted in this, uh, both this kind of analysis, but also this, you know, very physical targeting of the machinery as a, as a kind of uh, you know, a reaction against this, you know, anti-labor movement by capital. Um, I think now, you know, very much keeping those kinds of origins uh, alive and in mind and, and also at the same time expanding that. For me, what Luddism means now is to first and foremost ha understand technology as something that emerges out of specific political and economic conditions, plugs into specific uh, political and economic imperatives and, and, and interest, and therefore having a, an analysis of technology as thoroughly always already political and economic in that regard is something that doesn't sit aside as a separate sphere in society that sometimes overlaps 
um, like a Venn diagram with the with the political sphere or the economic sphere or the social sphere or by my life or whatever you know everyday life, um, but that these things are nested within each other. Having that analysis of technology, that very political economic analysis of technology, and then from there, you know, uh, uh, deriving a set of uh, more normative values and principles around what what is the purpose of technology? How should it be made? By by whom should it be made? For what reason should it be made and put to use for? Uh, and and the idea that you know workers you know labor um, as you know a class and struggle against capital, but also just more broadly you know people, the public should have a uh, should have influence and have a say over what technologies are made and which ones are not made, you know, what pathways are traveled down and which ones are um, denied or rejected or, uh, as the original Luddites did, you know, unmake, deconstruct, destroy things that have already been made but sit as these kind of materializations of capital or these monuments to um, the power of capital to shape and influence the world. For me, that is very that is what Luddism is, right? is is not being anti-technology but anti-capital's use of technology um, of of of, ag- of agitating for um, a kind of socially useful production um, socially useful uh, purposes for technology um, in the first place and you know part of that may look like you know how could we redesign or redeploy technologies that already exist so they meet different goals as you know as we've talked about with someone that you're also friends with Nick Chavez in some recent episodes um, while at the same time also imagining like what would a Luddite approach to technology look like? What new kinds of innovations or new kinds of systems might be created um, such that they contribute to a different type of world or a different vision of the world? Um, I, I mean, that that's the kind of, uh, you know, foot, uh, a Cliff Notes version of what Luddism means for us on TMK, what it means for me. And, and you know, very much is a kind of orienting framework or mode of analysis that uh, influences a lot of how um, you know TMK thought, if we might think of it as that, as as kind of trying to be uh, very publicly and very energetically, uh, you know, outlining what what Luddism means, outlining uh, today, outlining its relevance, and also trying to apply that mode of analysis to. Um, what's what's happening and what we want to see happen. So that that's that's our Cliff Notes version. I'm curious what you think about that, Bjorn. I'm down. Uh, I'll just speak to the ways in which I think people often misunderstand it, particularly in my world, because I used to talk about you know Luddism a lot more, um, and I found that uh, in my world, people had such a if, if they had heard of Luddism, which many of them had, you know, a lot of tech people, uh, you know, have, have bounced around Wikipedia a bit. And, you know, there, there's an unusually high awareness of like Ted Kaczynski thought, right? Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you know, King, but King Lud thought, uh, as well as some figures who are a little lesser known, um, but, you know, again, in the tech world, 
somewhat popular, like Ivan Illich, um, the sort of Catholic priest who wrote tools for conviviality and, you know, did all the sort of de-schooling stuff, which I'm personally quite skeptical of, but, you know, uh, this is all part of a, I I think like a, a a cluster of, of critiques of technology that in my experience, technical people have at least heard a version of. And anyway, I think what, when I, you know, would sort of jokingly say, well, I'm a Luddite, right. You know, just sort of, throw down the gauntlet and say, you know, I don't, I don't buy into any of this, this, you know, tech will save us stuff. I think people actually raised some pretty interesting critiques of it, which I don't think undermine anything you're saying, but the sort of popular image of, of, of Luddism is susceptible to, to this critique. So one was that by focusing on any, specific technical change or sector of technological dynamism, the critic of technology is making a kind of rationalistic error, right? They're like, who can, like, like, let's say, you know, Luddites had succeeded in preventing the power loom from coming into wider use. They would say, well, you know, wasn't it good that eventually the, uh, forces of production developed and we were able to move people out of backbreaking agriculture and had the Luddites gotten their way, wouldn't that, that have prevented technological ascent? And, you know, I think the answer to that question is no. And also let's consider that this was all built on, you know, slavery in the Americas and it's, it's not, you know, as, as uh, nice a picture as you're, you're painting. Uh, but they have a point when it comes to the actual practice of trade unions in the 19th and 20th centuries. So, for example, you know, it, it, I think it is actually characteristic of narrow trade union consciousness as opposed to a kind of socialist uh, consciousness that you prioritize a particular group of workers retaining their bargaining power over everything else, right? So, uh, for example, union that was incredibly successful in resisting technological change, the typographer's union, which was eventually folded into the CWA, um, they had, you know, just incredible bargaining power. Basically, every typographer, every person who typeset a newspaper uh, or a book in this country was union uh, for a good chunk of the, the 20th century and even the late 19th century. And they had this flourishing radical subculture. You know, the, the Lipset book, Union Democracy, is all about this union in its heyday, how it managed to have a sort of pluralistic left-wing culture. It did not become bureaucratized. It was very militant. And this culture of militancy was handed down generationally. There were lots of like father to son chains of typographers, all really interesting stuff. But what the way it ended, right, is they, they basically uh, made a deal for themselves. They resisted the switch to automated typesetting as long as they could because they really held together. And then they decided, you know, the jig is up. 
our sons don't want to go into typesetting anymore. We're just going to bargain for like a really good buyout package. And that'll be that. And there's not a clear cut moral to this story, right? Uh, it's, it's on the one hand, I think it's great. I, the typographers are, I think an inspiring example, but the sort of the, the critic who comes along and says, well, what was it all for? Why did they bother? Why did they delay the introduction of automated typesetting for however many years they did? Um, it didn't build toward anything. It didn't get us closer to uh, socialism, if, if you're into that. Or if you're not into that, it was just a drag on GDP. They just <laughs> pointlessly lowered labor productivity. And in the end, they sold out and had very little to show for it, right? And I, I think we should be this is something I always try to bring in to the, the Luddite conversation. We, it's always important to make the jump, as I think you do, and, and Gavin certainly does, from the sort of instinctive defense of like a valued work subculture, right? In this instance, these like father and son typesetters who can flex on the boss whenever they want because they're very high skill. It's very hard to replace them, right? That is, that is like a valued way of life, which we should, you know, all things equal, like the labor movement should think about retaining that. But I think what socialism is fundamentally about is that at some point you're, you're having a wider political debate about how this one technical change fits into an overall societal pattern and that you are able to balance particular groups, legitimate interests in preserving an arrangement they like with broader social interests. Because if under capitalism, you can't do that, right? It's a class divided society in which workers are just constantly having to defend, 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 and workers organizations can fall into these particularistic ruts. Like I would argue the ITU did, right? It's just, we have to defend our thing, our thing, our thing. And the, the tantalizing possibility, right? Is that the labor movement can have a vision of socialist planning such that it, it people engaged in these particular struggles can see, you know what, we, we can take one for society. We can give up this one way of doing things because it's part of a, like a political consensus that actually furthers everyone's well-being. And in a capitalist society, people are rightly cynical about this. They're told, in effect, that every technical change the boss proposes, ipso facto, must be increasing GDP, you know, increasing the hedonic surplus of value-maximizing agents. And they rightfully say, that's bullshit. That's obviously bullshit. This technical change is not just leading to more abstract wealth for everyone. It's leading to more power for identifiable bosses and widening inequality and perhaps most importantly, ever escalating environmental degradation. So it, it's, it's, it's just important 
it, you know, this is, this is what is so difficult about having a genuinely socialist orientation as opposed to just kind of doing what comes naturally in the labor movement, right? You can't, you always have to retain some vision of how you would navigate the real trade-offs, the real technical trade-offs at the societal level. Um, if you, you know, made that jump out of capitalist social relations, because if you don't have that vision, you end up becoming simply reactive and that will undermine the legitimacy of the labor movement in the long term. Um, and it will concretely undermine the organizations, right? The, to just to, you know, have a little coda here, the ITU today only exists as a set of boxes in an archive somewhere after the CWA sent all their, their files to some university. And today, the work the ITU did is done every time you open your browser and you resize the window, right? All the letters reflow automatically. That was their, that was their craft, right? It was a craft union that did what that browser window does. So I, it's hard for me not to see what I'm doing as sort of, you know, we, we, in a way, software developers are the workers who killed off the ITU, right? <laughs> we all live in the wreckage of past fights over which technologies would be adopted. You've raised so many interesting points here and, and really beautifully summed up, I think, uh, uh, or, or put forth rather, um, uh, you know, a, a, a very good building on the, on the idea of the last. I mean, just in response to a few things there is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think absolutely what's really important about like, you know, agitating for a revival of Luddism now is also, also, is also to not fall into that, uh, a couple traps that are quite easy to fall into. Um, and also, I mean, one that, you know, tra traps that we kind of set for ourselves in some ways by trying to, uh, redefine in people's minds what this word is that, uh, people have all, have, have, a, a, you know, have already been told what, what it means to be a Luddite and they have a pretty, you know, they might not have thought about it a whole lot, but they have a, you know, there's a definition in their mind of what it means. And so it's, you know, pushing back against that, trying to redefine that, you know, lends itself to uh, some difficulties. I think it's worthwhile because it is about connecting it to uh, a kind of historical and materialist analysis. Um, but there are some traps there. I mean, one, one trap is, to uh, uh, either inadvertently or explicitly, uh, you know, reject the demonization of the Luddites by instead mythologizing them, right? And that's not the, that's not the fact at all, right? Like these were not some uh, mythical figures, which you know the the kind of narratives around like you know um, King Lud or General Lud, you know, uh, even at that time, you know, those were 
quite explicitly um, narratives created to create a myth around around this movement. Um, but I think we have to be careful not to mythologize them. That you know, instead, it's not a complete one to one. Uh, copy and paste of what they did to the contemporary time, that would be disastrous. Um, but as instead, as you mentioned, you know, like Gavin Mueller's work in Breaking Things at Work is about, uh, drawing out larger lessons, uh, and, and drawing out a larger kind of political analysis from that. Um, I think another trap here as well is, you know, and it, it's baked into the story you've, you, you've told, uh, about the, the kind of typographers, you know, guild and, 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 and all that, which is this, you know, on one hand, a resistance to change, which kind of, you know, has this very personal interest rather than it being, um, something feeding into a, a kind of political goal or, or, uh, a movement. Um, and at the same time, this idea that Luddism means like, uh, freezing in, in time, fossilizing a certain way of doing things and nothing ever changes after that. That innovation can only come through capitalist doing innovation, right? And it, and it's inevitable, right? You're only postponing the inevitable. Uh, you're, you're, you know, either you're freezing everything in place in a certain time and space, um, or you're just delaying the inevitable. And, and why are you delaying it? Right. Um, and that's also, I, I, I think, you know, we would all agree here that that's also not um, what a Luddism should mean. It's not a. It's not another term for fossilization. It's a. It's instead a term for um, going down different pathways of what progress means, going down different um, pathways of what innovation means, and in fact, you know, trying to as well uh, redefine what those things mean as kind of social relations, as not things that are. Um, uh, you know, inherently or intrinsically um, done by capital or in the interest of capital, which is very much what how how terms like innovation or progress are deployed now, which is to say, you know, the innovation for capital or the progress of uh, of capitalist, um, and and that I think is you know it's hard, right? It's it's very difficult because it demands us to go uh, uh, to to also over overcome another tendency or trap here, um, which I think is not one that's unique to Luddism, but is instead one about the the kind of conditions of the working class now and for a very long time, which is um, on one hand to, to either be or at least feel defenseless against capital, right? You're just, all you can do is lay down and take it, right? Like, uh, and, and try to alleviate the pain, um, and eke out a life as best as possible. M uh, moving I think towards that's the AFL's actual, that should be the AFL's <laughs> slogan right there. Uh, exactly. I, I mean, that's seriously, I mean, that's it. Like fundamentally, yeah. that's what unions, let's try to eke out a life before we do anything else. Uh, yeah. I think you're exactly right here. And I, I think, yeah, the the worst unions are the ones that say we're defenseless, um, but let's just try to you know uh, block the blows as much as we can um, while we're being kicked on the ground. And then I think you know moving from that, it's it's uh, awful that that the state of like radical politics now um, is essentially dominated by moving from defenselessness to defense. 
right? All right, well, then, you know, being, a, you know, having real radical political movement now means that we're no longer laying down and taking it, but we're actively playing defense. You know, this is what the typographers were, were doing, right? I'm defending my own position um, in, in my job that I think for me, one of the things that we are trying to push in terms of Luddism, but it doesn't have to be, you know, wrapped up in Luddism, but I think it is necessary in terms of leftism as a, as a kind of broad tent is to move towards more of an offense, right? Which to put it differently is to move from the negative, right? This is bad. This is, this shouldn't exist. Um, we don't need this, which is the mode that a lot of Luddism and a lot of other kind of critique uh, is in and move towards some uh, an offense or or a positive position. Here's what we should do. Here's what we need. Here's what the world also you know should actually look like. Those are the trajectories we need to move along. And and you know for us for me I think Luddism is is a politics for that for kind of positive offense. Um, but 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 that's not to say it's going to happen today or tomorrow or next week at all. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've said all of that beautifully. Um, I, I think it's so, it is so rare, unfortunately, to encounter a socialist perspective today that, as, as you put it, has both a positive and a critical dimension. Uh, I think we, and I, I'm optimistic, I think this is changing, but I, I think for a while there was this weird sort of intellectual division of labor on the, at least in the Anglophone left, where some people were just, you know, they focused on, you know, sort of the, the, the critical aspect, uh, the sort of movementist, like we just have to hit capital where it hurts and we'll figure it out <laughs> when we get there. And then on the other hand, a kind of neo-utopian, you know, dreaming, uh, which is, I think, also important. People sort of envisioning... Uh, my favorite example is this kind of solar punk subculture. I'm not <laughs> sure if you guys have encountered this, right? It's not, I'm not going to say it has a ton of intellectual heft right now. I mean, it does and it doesn't. Uh, it's primarily kind of an aesthetic, right? It's an idea of a, 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 an alternative futurity, right? It's, it's uh, contrasted with the sort of cyberpunk dystopia they want to imagine, what if we had a different technology and we didn't wreck the environment and we managed to avoid living on a, a very hot earth? But yeah, I, I, I think you, you said it well. We really have to have both of those elements for our critique of capitalism to be compelling. And here, I'll just plug my blog really quickly, if that's okay. If yeah, you check of course. Out socialistplanning.org. Uh, I haven't posted on it in a while, uh, but, you know, I have a great excuse. I've been bargaining this contract uh, with my coworkers. Um, but th this is really why I started the blog and why I started collaborating with Aaron Benedev on uh, an article he published in Logic Magazine a few issues back about socialist planning protocols. You know, I, I think in order to find the critique of capitalism persuasive, you need to be able to envision in broad strokes what an alternative order would look like. And I think a lot of people who have engaged deeply with Marx, when they hear someone say this, a kind of alarm goes off and they say, 
we're not supposed to write recipes for the cook shops of the future. That's like, that's our thing, right? We don't, we don't do that. Um, and, you know, I, I, David Schweikart, you know, a, a longtime participant in these, these academic debates about possible socialist planning models, um, makes a really seemingly obvious point, uh, which I've not heard others make as forcefully, which is, well, you know, Marx was writing that at a time when there hadn't been a massive labor movement. Uh, the sort of Owenite experiments in cooperative production were incipient and, and, you know, Marx was very encouraged by those, but I think took the Owenites at their word when they said, you know, we're just figuring this stuff out. <laughs> we don't really know what we're doing yet. And Schweikart makes the point that a lot has happened <laughs> since Marx has died. And we can uh, make some very, we can draw some very definite conclusions, certainly about what does not work. And I think particularly uh, among American socialists, uh, but I think this applies to, you know, socialists across the, like, let's say the high income countries, the, the first world, what used to be called the first world countries, I, I think are still living in this sort of defensive crouch from the Cold War, right, where they're afraid to engage seriously with the failures of actually existing socialism in the Soviet Union, in Yugoslavia, uh, in, you know, People's Republic of China. There's a fear that, you know, gosh, some really bad stuff happened there. It seems like a lot of reading to do. <laughs> I don't want to say something that uh, it, I, is going to embarrass me. So I'm just going to think about Denmark. I'm going to think about Sweden. <laughs> I'm going to think about Belgium, right? And I, I don't mean to say that there aren't interesting lessons to learn from the sort of, you know, Scandinavian social democratic experience as well. I think that's obviously true. Uh, but I, I think, I think uh, we've ended up in this interesting place where people know they need to be critical of command central planning as it existed in the Soviet Union. They need to be very skeptical of the sort of Yugoslav um, worker managed firms without democratic investment planning. But they don't really know, they're afraid to engage with the concrete history too much because I think it seems, it seems overwhelming. Uh, and I think there just needs to be a lot more writing on this. It's, if you, I, I, I feel pretty confident that I have like, I, I, am, I know the names of all the people who have been writing on this over the last 50 years. And it's a very small number of people. And they're not, they're, they're great. You know, the, the David Schweikarts, the Pat Devines, the, you know, Paul Cockshots, uh, the Hanel and Alberts with Paricon, right? Like there's, there's a little clique of, of people who have been trying to, to take lessons from, from this history and propose something very different from both the capitalist status quo and these sort of failed 20th century socialisms. But, you know, we're talking about like 10 academics, right? I, I, there just needs to be like way more in engagement with this. And I, I think, yeah, I, the, what I'll plug as maybe a, a tantalizing last reading recommendation, 
I think Tony Smith's book, Beyond Liberal Egalitarianism, if, if you read one book on sort of sketching out what is wrong with a sort of merely liberal egalitarian politics and what an alternative politics would, would really look like, make it Tony Smith's Beyond Liberal Egalitarianism. That's my plug. I think he's the most readable uh, Anglophone writer in this sort of broad, uh, you know, value form Marx, Marxological current. Uh, I think he's really engaged with writers like Schweikart and really, yeah, identifies what to me is the essential thing, which is we need to think about both structures for workplace democracy uh, and uh, what it means to plan investment uh, on uh, society-wide in order to be able to deliberately and democratically make the kinds of choices we were talking about earlier, right, around technological change. And I think what's controversial today uh, is that Smith is willing to acknowledge that you will need to, uh, you know, retain a market in production goods. You will not make a leap into a sort of moneyless communism. But I think he argues quite persuasively that that sort of leap is not required to put out of play the valorization imperative, which is at the heart of Marx's critique of political economy. I know that last sentence is probably intelligible to <laughs> relatively few people, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I, 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 I really encourage people to, to check out the book because it's, it requires a while to get there, but it's very lucid and you don't have to be as big a Marx nerd as I am to, I think, take a lot away from it. I will definitely put a link to that book in the show notes. Um, and I, I think with that, I mean, that is a great way to wrap up and also to tease the fact that we had, you know, grand plans, as is often the case, to talk about so many more things than we had time to. But uh, to be kind to us and to our listeners, um, we're, you know, we're, we, we, we keep pumping out these like massively uh, overlong episodes <laughs> um, because there's just so much interesting stuff to, to talk about. And all that is to say, um, I think this is a, a perfect tease for uh, we just need to have you back on, Bjorn, to actually do, you know, to, to spend more time talking about uh, these, you know, debates uh, and work around socialist planning, socialist calculation, something that. Um, I think is quite evident you know a lot more about than we do, but is also something, a topic that we are really interested in for all the reasons 
you've just laid out. And so, um, Bjorn, this is, this is the invitation to you to come back at a later time so we can spend another two hours, uh, talking about, uh, Marxist theory and socialist planning and all of that. Um, we've done away with all the biographical stuff and we can get really deep into the, uh, the intellectual meaty discussion and heavy lifting. So <laughs> with that, thank you very much, Bjorn, for, for joining us. Um, is there anything else you would like to plug or point people in the direction to? No, I think that's, uh, I think that's really it. I'll just, I'll just close by saying, uh, if you feel like there are problems in your workplace that are widely felt, uh, don't let your dreams be dreams. Organizing is not as hard as it, it seems to be. Uh, it doesn't matter which union you reach out to, or even if you reach out to a union, just start talking to your coworkers and thinking about how to take collective action to address the, the problems facing you. And if you're sitting there thinking, I've never experienced any of this, I don't know what Bjorn is talking about, talk to your coworkers. See, see if maybe there isn't more discontent uh, under the surface that, that you don't perceive, uh, because I, I, I often have found that once, once the taboo against comparing experiences is broken, people realize that things they had accepted about their working life, uh, things they had never thought to question, in fact, many others had questioned. And, and once they decided to make the change, uh, it was hard for them to understand how they'd ever put up with it for so long. So that's my final sort of rallying cry. That's perfect. I couldn't imagine it better. Instead, instead of plugging something of your own, you've plugged the concept of talking to your workers and unionizing. I love it. <laughs> um, so with that, then I think I will wrap up. I'll also say on behalf of Ed, who had to tend to a family matter and left about an hour ago, uh, you know, we appreciate you coming on and spending so much time with us. Um, and to our listeners, you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills where uh, we put out premium episodes every single week, um, furthering these kinds of discussion and this kind of analysis that you've just heard here. So find us there. Um, and uh, so until then, later.
Kill.